Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello and welcome everyone to the discussion hosted by the RSA. I'm Dr Jess Wade, a research fellow at Imperial College London, and today I'm here with Roma Agaral. Hello, Roma. How are you doing? It's nice to be here. <laughs> well, let me first introduce you. Roma Agaral, MBE, is an engineer, author and presenter who is best known for her work on the Shard, the iconic building on the London skyline. She studied physics at Oxford and then engineering at Imperial College London. Her first book, Built, won an award from the American Association for the Advancement of Science and has been translated into nine languages. She also transformed it into a children's book, How Was That Built? Her new book, Nuts and Bolts, Seven Small Inventions That Changed the World in a Big Way, is out now and we'll be exploring some of the themes of this book in this discussion. If you're watching live, we'd love for you to get involved in the live chat. Please do share your thoughts and comments. If you're on Twitter, you can use the hashtag RSA Inventions. Um, hello, Roma. It's really, really great to be here. Um, I absolutely loved Nuts and Bolts. I loved Thank it you. because you just, on every single page, get your kind of excitement and your enthusiasm and your passion for engineering. Um, but also that curiosity and that kind of attention to detail for looking at the small objects that contribute to these absolutely ginormous structures. Um, you know how enthusiastic <laughs> I am about it and about you. Um, but also it really changed my thought and perspective on some aspects of engineering that I thought I understood um, and it really transformed that. So I'm grateful to you for writing it um, but also um, for having this discussion with me today. Um, so I thought, could you, could you start off by telling us or telling our audience what inspired you to write the book and, and how you chose these seemingly simple seven objects? Um, yeah, sure. So um, I had a baby and got bored, I think is part of the story. So I was on maternity leave and I felt like um, I needed to use my brain in some way and I needed to just get some ideas flowing. Um, and then the lockdowns hit us. So, you know, you're very, very restrained in this small space. And I started kind of physically and mentally deconstructing stuff that I could see around me. So ballpoint pen, for example, or I even kind of took a screwdriver to my blender, just had a little peek inside. Um, and then I started thinking, well, what happens if I dismantle my car or the building that I can see out of my window or, you know, just all this kind of stuff. And I started making a list of like the little bits that were inside them. So I would say something like gear. But then if I thought about it, what's more fundamental than the gear? It's the wheel. And eventually I came down to the same seven objects that I thought almost became the building blocks, the fundamental building blocks of our technology, of our engineering. Um, and I wanted to shake it up a little bit from the kind of Renaissance six machines thing where you know, you've got the kind of lever inclined plane, stuff like that. Um, and yeah, so I came up with this list of seven and I often have really fascinating discussions with people about what they might have included or yeah. excluded. Um, so I would love to hear from the audience um, on Twitter, on social media, to see whether they've got any other ideas that they would include. Well, I was thinking that when I was reading it, these kind of seven objects, you obviously go off and in the book, you interview a lot of engineers, you and your professional life meet a lot of engineers. 
in general, do they agree with you? You could probably tell the audience without revealing too much what the seven objects are and then say whether people have generally agreed with you or not. Yeah, no, of course. So um, we start with the nail, then the wheel is a slightly more obvious one, I guess, but hopefully I've told that story in a fresh way. We've got spring, um, I'm going to get the order wrong, magnet, lens, string and pump. So those are my seven. And I think the one that comes up the most actually when I'm speaking to other people is the lever. Mm. Um, I don't know, can, I, can we say that that's got some relation to a wheel because there's some, like there's a point of rotation, I don't know. But the lever is the one that tends to come up a bit more. But yeah, I'm, I'm sticking to my seven. Lever's very, I've studied physics at school, this is what I think I should be saying is the important thing, right? Like maybe, maybe, maybe. when you deconstruct things, you actually think about which goes into them. Maybe you don't see levers as often as a physics high school education makes you yeah, think you would. Potentially. Um, so I'd like to give you as a sense of the narrative and the kind of methodology of the book. So I wondered if you could kind of choose one component out of all of these different objects and tell us why you chose that and kind of the story behind it. Sure, so I'm, I think I'm going to go with string because most people are surprised by that choice. Um, I don't think string generally appears on examples of the best, biggest, most influential inventions on the planet. Um, but I think the string is an incredible piece of engineering. It is flexible but strong. And basically that combination is very unique. Now the story of string we thought was a human story but actually starts with our cousins, the Neanderthals. And in a cave in France, archeologists were able to find a tiny piece of string that was stuck to, uh, I think it was a piece of stone or something. And this string was only about half a millimeter wide and I think it was about six millimeters long, but it was twisted. So what the Neanderthals had worked out is that you can take natural fibers, they'd made this out of the bark of a tree, but that to make string robust or strong, you needed to combine those fibers in a way that the friction basically kept it together. So they formed three pieces of thread and they twisted each one of those together, you know, mm. sorry, each one of those individually and then they twisted all three of them together in the opposite direction. So this shows a level of cognition, of geometry, of understanding that almost we thought was beyond the Neanderthals. So like this tiny little invention of string has quite challenged what we thought of our cousins. Um, so that's kind of the origin story of string, which I love that actually it wasn't a human invention. And then you go to Egypt, to India, where we started using cotton. We started creating looms and spinning wheels. Um, the first piece of cloth that we found was in what is now Turkey, um, which was found in the grave of a child. You then go into more modern era where we started creating artificial fibers because throughout this time we've been using wool, silk, cotton, hemp, stuff like that. A, a, a very interesting thing is that when you look at the microscopic um, structure of wool, of sheep's wool, it actually has these opposing twists in it naturally, but obviously the Neanderthals wouldn't have known that. Um, so then we come to nylon, which was the first artificial fiber, but nylon snapped easily. And then I've told the story of Stephanie Kualek, who is an American Polish scientist who discovered Kevlar, as it's now known, and that is used in 
bulletproof vests. It's used in um, the insulation for firefighters, uniforms and so on. And then I talk about musical instruments, catgut, um, why different instruments like the tampura, which is an Indian instrument, they have its, you know, it has its normal strings that you play, but they also use little cotton threads to create this beautiful kind of resonance um, and soundscape, which is really unique. I talk about, you know, we just mentioned clothes. Um, and then I take this all the way. So, th so this is, we think of string as being a very small scale thing. Um, but my argument is that the biggest suspension bridges in the world that are held up by cables are inspired by string because these cables are formed in a very similar way to, to yarn, to thread, except they're made from steel. I really, I really love that kind of going from the nanoscale almost and the microscopic up to the cables that support, support suspension bridges, especially when you get that opportunity in the book to really talk about the bridges and the engineering that you mm. worked on. Yes. Like I think obviously your voice and your energy is there the whole time, but when you're talking about this Northumbria suspension bridge, it's like, ah, Roma starts <laughs> singing because you can really see that thing coming to life. Uh, thank you, I really appreciate that. Um, and obviously we know that you love the nano. Um, you have that <laughs> fabulous children's book that everyone should look at. But yes, I, I, it was really important for me to include parts of my own work. You know, my first two books were very much about um, the built world, construction, stuff that's very comfortable to me. This book takes you across all the different realms of engineering, but it was still important for me to bring my personal experiences, not only from my career, but also from my personal life into the book. And I think um, you'll find examples of that throughout. It's kind of beautifully woven in your personal life, but also kind of your, your family history. And, and before Roma was on planet Earth, how what engineering <laughs> meant to, to, to your, your family's life. I also do love that kind of integration of, of music being such a critical part mm. of it, whether it's the strings on these Indian instruments, there was um, an absolutely incredible Indian physicist called C.V. Raman, who you've probably heard of, and he was motivated to discover a whole field of vibrational spectroscopy because he was trained in all of these Indian instruments that had all of these interesting wave patterns and structures that really motivated his kind of interest in that. And then completely transformed how we understand materials or the way that we can measure and, and interpret things. So starting from something like string and, and music gives people this capacity and this creative space to go a lot further. And I think that Nuts and Bolts does a perfect job of conveying that. Um, I guess we've, we've, we've covered string a little bit, but inventions that have been kind of built on some of these objects, wheels, nuts, lenses, give kind of humans this, this superhuman power. Mm. And I wondered um, what your writing of this book or your researching of this book has taught you about what it takes to be a kind of good engineer and the capacity for engineers to transform the world or society? Yep, so I think the fundamental for being a good engineer is curiosity and um, thinking about the impact that your work is going to have. So if I perhaps pick Magnet as my example here, and you talked a little bit about my, you know, the kind of the generations above me and the impact that engineering had on them, um, the Magnet is a great example. So we didn't actually invent the Magnet as humans. We found magnetic substances in the Earth. Um, you'll have to tell me as a physicist, does anybody actually understand Magnetism. <laughs> I, think, magnetism. I think everyone is fascinated by it. Like every <laughs> physicist you talk to is just like, 
magnets are really cool like every new system in their slightly different way to yeah. do something else also as my first significant piece of scientific equipment i've bought my own as a researcher you That's know fun. i got That's the money great. to do it it's a giant <laughs> magnet and it was like waiting for it to come all last year like it was christmas it came at christmas it was the best thing ever and um, so we are fascinated by mm. them i'm sure every you know as with anything scientific or engineering and um, everyone will give you a slightly different description about them but but yeah, take so it away Roma you've written a whole chapter <laughs> I mean so I mean I really struggled with the science like trying to explain how the science of magnetism and electromagnetism works is a real challenge um, and I also as an engineer I guess wanted to focus on the impact of that so I've traced the journey of three generations of my family and the impact that magnetism had on them and I start with my grandparents and my aunts and uncles who used to send telegrams to each other and um, I'll come on to a second on how magnetism is relevant to that. So we start with a telegram. I then talk about a different aunt of mine moving to the US. And yes, they used to write long letters to each other. But the telephone then became a really key part of the communication of between my aunt and her parents. And then when I come to kind of my, my mum's generation, then the television was obviously huge. And um, you're probably too young to remember the cathode ray televisions um I remember it like a, let's do an experiment <laughs> with this ridiculous television <laughs> um, but that's the kind of television i grew up watching and then after that we come to uh, the internet and ethernet ports and basically all of the electronics in our lives that have transformers rely on electromagnetism so magnets have played you know as you say the superhuman uh, have given us a superhuman ability to communicate over long distances. Mm -hmm. It feels like a magical force that can act over huge distances. So, you know, we can, I can now just swipe my smartphone and call my mum in India th via satellites and bouncing electromagnetic radiation. Um, so that's the magic. And what does that mean for the impact of engineers? It means that we can communicate and the world has become so much of a smaller place. It means we can communicate into space, we can communicate across the continents, we can communicate under sea. And that ability to communicate has you know, really fundamentally changed our society. But in terms of the impact that we should be thinking about, there can be great impacts, but obviously, as with everything, engineering can also have quite a negative impact on society, depending on who has the power and who holds um, how that particular piece of engineering or technology is being used. So I think the great example with magnetism is, is the telegraph. And the fact that the telegraph system that my grandfather and my uncles were using in India was built by British colonialists. And there was a Scottish doctor, um, William O. Shaughnessy, I think I'm saying that correctly, um, who basically created or started off the telegraph system in India to get funding from the East India Company to build it they basically had to prove that this was going to help the empire and so the roots of the telegraph system around India were very much focused on where they thought the most troublemakers were the most rebellions were going to occur and they basically rooted this telegraph system for that purpose and to exert political power on on the Indians um, Eventually, so, so, you know, the Telegraph then has a story within the first rebellions that happened in 1857, where um, Indian sepoys that were working for the British Army 
you know, they targeted the telegraph system to destroy it so that they couldn't communicate across, um, you know, the different factions to say, gosh, you've got a rebellion coming. Unfortunately, that rebellion got quashed. But yeah, the telegraph has this quite deep colonial history. But then the Indians adopted it. And I think the it was about the 1980s, so when I was born, that Indians were sending the, you know, it was a peak kind of sending telegraph time in India. But now, of course, it's, it's gone. People don't use telegraphs anymore. But been replaced by another form of electromagnetism. Still, magnets are remaining as this kind of central object that's yes. important for this. 100%. And I think it's, it, I mean, you've done a perfect job in that answer of, of saying how integral history and that exploration is to this book. But I found that quite exciting to read about to your own personal journey of doing this research, finding these yeah. things out and, and pulling it all together. You want to tell not only the contemporary science and the technical detail that underpins this, but also the, the story of why we got there in the first place. Was that quite important to you as you wrote this book? Um, it is, because I think in the UK, um, or maybe in the West in particular, we've kind of lost our fascination with engineering. I mean, I grew up in India, where it's very normal to want to be an engineer when you grow up. And in fact, most parents want their kids to be engineers. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of boring that I'm an engineer in a way. Um, so I think we've slightly lost that. And I think what I'm really trying to do with this book, and particularly with the personal stories that I tell, uh, is is to make it relatable mm. to the reader. And I think most of us would really, really relate to the idea of the COVID pandemic and using all these different forms of communication to keep in touch with our loved ones, you know. Um, and then now that, you know, we've kind of come out of that stage of the pandemic, we can maybe have a little bit more space to think, how did that technology come up? And what's the story behind that? And why was it that we were able to have video calls at the drop of a hat. Um, what's the engineering behind that? Yeah, I think it kind of teaches you in a way um, that the legacy and the, the work and the effort of people before, but also this kind of don't take everything for granted. <laughs> like we've still yes. relied on these, but we used to, it used to be a lot more <laughs> archaic the way that you had to communicate and connect and discuss, even as what seems like it's relatively recent in the 1980s. Um, so in the book, you, you debunk the phrase, we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. Um, so I wondered whether you could talk us through this process, I mean, everyone's heard that, right? Like you don't have, every time you try anything, they're like, don't reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Um, but you actually argue in this book, we've, we've reinvented the wheel a lot of times yes. for good and for bad. Um, so I wonder if you could talk us through that kind of process of reinvention. Um, yeah, so, so that's a phrase that really grinds my gears. Just throw, <laughs> throw a little pun in there. Um, we, we think of wheels as being transportation of movement. But wheel, the wheel wasn't invented for transportation. It was invented for pottery in Mesopotamia. And it was to create pottery quickly, more robustly. Um, populations were expanding. They needed to store food for longer and they needed good pots in order to do that. And it took, um, so we could have stopped there if we hadn't reinvented the wheel. <laughs> but then somebody said, what happens if I flip that up and then maybe attach a second wheel and you know across this axle? And then wagons and carts came about, and these were running on quite solid, chunky wheels, which did the job. They were cut out of three planks of wood and doweled together, so you have a little nod to the nail there, mm -hmm. allowing the wheel to become a thing. And we think that some of the earliest wheels came from the Yamnaya community in the Caucasus region. And um, 
that completely changed their lives. So they moved from being just like a local settlement to you know, expanding around Europe, potentially spreading the Black Death across Europe and you know, revolutionising agriculture and being able to plough fields and so on. Um, but those wheels were quite chunky and heavy, as I mentioned. So you then think about you know, the gladiators in Rome or people doing races and wars in ancient Greece and you see spoked wheels. You even see a lot of that in iconography in India. In fact, the centre of well, the, the flag, flag <laughs> is, um, is a spoked wheel. And the spoked wheel required a lot more nuance in the carpentry and the techniques of putting it together. But it was much lighter, so it allowed mm. kind of speed. So there's another reinvention. Um, and then when we started trying to invent flying machines in the 18th century, the inventors were going, well, even spoked wooden wheels are too heavy to kind of take off. Mm. So then they invented the wire wheel. So we think of the wire wheel as being ubiquitous on our bicycles, but again, that was not what it was invented for. So you went from the spoked wheel to the wire wheel, and then it took, again, like decades, if not over 100 years, for someone to think, what if I just did that with the wheels instead of having them in a line that way, let's put them in the same plane to create the bicycle. And then of course there's gears after that. I can't think of probably any machine that doesn't have a gear in it. Um, and gyroscopes. So my story of the wheel of reinvention takes us from the potter's wheel all the way to the International Space Station, where the International Space Station has four giant wheels called flywheels, which are essentially gyroscopes but they're wheels that spin, and if you try and force them to move direction, they exert a counteracting force on the International Space Station, and that's what keeps the International Space Station in the correct orbit and facing the correct direction. Yeah, so pottery to the International Space Station is where reinvention of the wheel has taken us. And it's that kind of idea, I suppose, most physicists and engineers who'd say when you start a project, don't reinvent the wheel, would say it's actually all right to iterate. Like, you know, you learn from what's happened before and you're making it better. You're yeah. making it more lightweight. You're bringing in this new functionality. But you'd argue that there's, it's not just iteration. In some steps, it is actually reinventing it. I, well, I think, I think they both go hand in hand because you could argue that the spoked wheel to the wire, wire wheel is an iteration or a reinvention. Um, I would say maybe going from the potter's wheel to right, a wagon skin. was a reinvention. So, so I think the two things need to go hand in hand, but I think it's always important to just question, are we just doing this particular thing in a certain way because that's how we've been doing it for decades, or is there a better way to do it and what might that look like? And I think that's where that creativity in engineering comes in. Yeah, I wish, I mean, we need that in all of life, right? In <laughs> politics, in medicine, we need to say, yes. is this the right way we're doing mm. it and what can we do better? I wonder if I can ask you a very mean question. Um, <laughs> how did the first person who made a bicycle learn, know they could ride it? Um, this is this is very um, it's a good question. <laughs> so it was the Laufmaschine, which is a German a German inventor came up with it, and it was actually a bit like the balance bikes that toddlers have. So like my toddler has a balance bike, which she refuses to ride, but that's a different story. Um, and so, essentially, the first adult bicycles were in fact without pedals, and you had to kind of use your legs okay. Flintstone style to to run them. Okay. So I guess that's that was how they figured out, okay, 
yeah, we can balance this, but then the pedals and the tyres and all of that stuff came later. It's amazing. I, I, I love cycling. Um, <laughs> so, so you do a marvellous job in this book, as you have done in all of your books, about kind of uncovering some hidden figures, some previously people from historically marginalised groups who we may not have heard about, um, but really enrich your story and enrich our understanding of engineering. I wonder um, if you could tell us about any, but also why did you put those in? Why is that important to you? Yeah, so I think um, there's these tropes of like the West knows best. We think we hear stories of Western innovation and progress, and we we think that that's really the cradle of where all of this stuff happens. So so that's one stereotype to break, and the other stereotype to break is that of the lone genius, because none of these things happen in a vacuum. It's not that you know this white man sat in a room and came up with this incredible idea that changed the world. That's just not how engineering, science, the world works. Um, and so to shatter both of these stereotypes, it's really important for me to find those stories. So there are stories um, about women, which we'll come to, but kind of three of the people that come to mind from being from the global south, as we sometimes refer to it, you know, I'm thinking of Jagdish Chandra Bose, who was a 19th century scientist. He was a polymath, so he studied things you know ranging from biology to physics to um, you know the radio waves and, and all of this stuff and he was responsible for inventing a device called the coherer and probably you know better than me what it does and how it works but the short story is that that it was about long-range communication using radio waves and we hear of Marconi all the time as the inventor of the radio but in fact you know without Bose's work I don't know that that could have happened. And Bose never patented his work. He was a scientist in colonial India, and that's just like something he didn't really have access mm. to. And he also said philosophically that he doesn't think engineering or science belongs to an individual. It belongs to society. Um, I think of the story of Takaya Nagi Kenjiro, who is a Japanese engineer, and he was designing televisions um, in the early 20th century, early to mid 20th century, and he invented the first all electronic television, and he's known as the father of television in Japan. But we, didn't, we tend to not hear of him in the West, again, because his work wasn't patented, and a lot of his records and work was lost in the Second World War. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, there's different stories like that which are really important to me. Oh, and, the, and I, another one which I absolutely love is actually Ibn al-Hetam, who was an Islamic scholar in the Middle Ages, which was actually the golden age of science. We call it the Dark Ages in the West, but in fact, it was the golden age of science in the Middle East. And he was the person who, after thousands of years of speculation from the Greeks, the Romans, everyone, he figured out that light and your eyes are two independent things. You know, we, it's obvious mm. to us now, but all of these centuries, we thought that our eyes were emitting light and then therefore I could see that glass of water, whatever. So he, he completely revolutionized optics. And his work was built on and referred to by Isaac Newton 700 to 800 years later. But I, you know, we, I'd never heard of Ibn al-Haytham even during my physics degree. I love, I love when um, students discover these kind of things. I had some students working last summer on a project to uncover these stories and how they could be woven into physics curricula. 
and this kind of feeling of unjust that they've not <laughs> been taught the true side of physics, yeah. that these stories were there and hidden centuries before people in the West started working on them and they're not getting it. Um, I wonder if you get that a lot, because I know that this, you know, this exposing and uncovering hidden figures is something crucial to who you are. Yeah. Do you get a lot of correspondence from readers and listeners who are just like, thanks for doing that? Um, yeah, I do actually. And I just, I just think it makes our understanding of the world and of history of engineering so much richer if we take that global perspective and realize that, you know, it's not just one part of the world that has created the progress or knows um, the best way of doing things. Uh, you know, Snell's law, which we're very familiar with as physicists, which is about um, the angles of light and how that interacts with a lens or a piece of glass, was actually, it should be called Ibn Sahel's law. Again, another scholar from the Islamic Golden Age who actually did that work hundreds of years before Snell, but his work, again, it got lost. So I love that there are people all over the world now trawling the archives, um, translating documents, interpreting documents, and just finding these stories. Um, so it's not that I've found an original person that no one knew about. All I'm able to do with my book is trying to bring those stories together in one place and encourage readers to go out and explore even further. Yeah, I love that. And I wondered when you were speaking just then, what was, when was the moment for you that you, you realised all of this stuff? Because obviously the physics that we got taught at high school didn't include these stories. Um, maybe even an undergraduate didn't include them. Really for me, and you also studied at Imperial, but it was only when I started as a kind of graduate student and started doing research that you really recognised this is a team effort. It's an extraordinarily diverse interdisciplinary team effort. And it's going to require all of these people from all of these different backgrounds with these different skills. But I didn't get it in those early stages of my education. When did you realise this? I, th I think probably similar to you is once I started working. So, so during my master's, which was at Imperial, we did quite a few group projects. And, I, and that already, that gave me a bit of a foundation um, no pun intended, that you know, <laughs> when people have to work together and use different ideas to create stuff. And, and my master's programme was extraordinarily diverse. We had people there from all over the world, and I loved that. Um, in terms of these hidden stories, I don't think I figured those out until six or seven years ago, to be honest. So when I was writing Built, for example, um, I, came, you know, I came across Emily Roebling's story, and she was the daughter-in-law and wife of the two engineers that were originally responsible for the Brooklyn Bridge. And after the two men, essentially one of them died, one of them became disabled, she took over. And I was like, hang on a second. I had no idea that this was a thing. I lived um, in New York. I grew up in yeah. New York. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then, of course, there's all these different initiatives. So things like Ada Lovelace Day and you know the women in science and women in engineering and all of that. And I slowly started kind of realizing that there was so much more and when Hollywood got on board with the Hidden Figures film I was like yes now this is <laughs> now we've probably got the momentum to really realize the value of these stories. Yeah I love it and I love thinking about how, how what we teach will change because of this like yes. you know inspired by these books and 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 everything you've done and um, so so you've kind of touched on it again but but gender is obviously a kind mm. of important theme in your book and you show how um, lenses and pumps have advanced fertility options and things like that um, and you include a few incredible women from history 
a little bit on Evely, Emily Rowling, <laughs> Roebling, um, but also on, on Josephine Cochran, the inventor of the dishwasher. Um, and I absolutely love this section also because of the, the diagrams, um, yes. like the way that you can go through it so kind of forensically. Um, so I wonder whether this and also what you learned in book built and um, writing built has shown us about kind of women's contributions throughout history and the impact and the importance of having women engineers there today. Totally. So Josephine Cochran was an American woman and she had a patent, which is very unusual. But of course, you can't tell from the names on the patents what the sex or the gender of a person is, because it just says J. Cochran. Um, but the, the US patent website had done a story on her and a little bit of digging. You know, I could find her actual patent and I've included a shot of that in the book. And it's so cool. Like, I absolutely adore it. Um, so, yeah, so she just got fed up with the way her dishes, I think she had like 16th century china or something. I love her, she was like a party and girl. She, <laughs> she was, was like a, party. a society was a party girl. Social, yeah. To have better parties, she was like, we've got to invent <laughs> something else to do the cleaning. <laughs> um, yes, and, um, and she, she describes how men would basically come in and try and reinvent what she'd done and then realize it didn't work and they're like, oh, okay. I'm, I'm sure they never said, oh, you're right, but that's, I guess, the conclusion they came to. Um, so yes, I've got, and I mentioned Stephanie Qualick as well, so she's another important figure that um, is a woman in my book. But in terms of the technology itself, so with the lens, so my daughter is an IVF baby, and when I was thinking about, you know, I was on maternity leave, as I mentioned, when I was coming up with these ideas, and I was like, she wouldn't exist without microscopes and therefore the lens. And then when I delved into the story around, you know, fertility and IVF, I mean, there are some very funny stories, you could say. There's, you know, you'll have to look up Anthony van Leeuwenhoek, who was a Dutch cloth maker that played around with lenses. He was the first to see um, sperm. You know, I'll, I'll leave it to your imagination how that happened, perhaps. And um, we take it from there to, you know, figures that were investigating how an embryo could be created outside the body. And again, the story that we don't often hear is of a scientist called Miriam Menkin, who wanted to be a doctor, she wanted to study, but she gave up her career for her husband and her children, um, that career for husband and children, and became a laboratory assistant instead. She felt you know, she could manage her responsibilities better that way. And she took the samples of a thousand women from surgery, volunteers, who gave her ovarian tissue, and then she would go and look at them under a microscope. Out of the thousand samples, only 47 of them had eggs in them. And then she would extract these eggs and try and fertilize them in the lab. So this is a very tedious, repetitive, mm. you know, piece of work that she did for over six years. And then one day she finally succeeded in um, getting fertilization to happen and then for the cells to start splitting. And that's where this whole idea of IVF came from. So while we might hear the name of her male bosses, it was her that did the graft to actually make the experiment work. Um, so yes, I write about um, that. In fact, the lens chapter opens as a letter to my daughter saying how important this piece of engineering is to her very existence. And then the other one that I write about, I mean, how many engineering books do you know that have a breast pump in them? I, I don't, I can't <laughs> think of any that include this letter. I found the letter very moving to read and also kind of thinking, you know, 
I've heard IVF a billion times, but I've never really thought about the lenses mm. or the actual process mm. to do it. So, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine another engineering. Maybe now you've started a trend maybe and everyone trend. will have to so include <laughs> it. Um, but I did think it was a kind of bold move and, and maybe touching a little bit on this need for more women to be taking up engineering or us mm. to be changing engineering to make it more welcoming for women today. Totally. So um, I talk about the breast pump as well, which, you know, again, I, I don't know any engineering books that would like really delve into the history of the breast pump. Um, men designed it for most of the history that it's existed, which is about 200-ish years. And they involved like strange things that you would attach to your breast and then have to like suck on, or the machines would pull continuously. And as somebody who's used a breast pump, that is not something I would want anywhere near me, mm -hmm. believe me. Um, and then we started coming up with the pumps, the suck and release function, um, which was introduced by a na man named Hoover, but not the same Hoover as the one that invented like the vacuum cleaner, because that slightly terrified me. <laughs> um, and it was, it's only in the 1990s, okay, so we're talking really recently, 1990s, that we could get at-home electric breast pumps. Mm. Otherwise, they were like industrial grade that were in hospitals or used to milk cows. So it's not surprising that we felt like we're literally being milked um, with these machines. And it's only really in the last decade that women are designing breast pumps and actually thinking, hold on a second, what do women actually want? So we probably work, we probably have to go around, we probably don't have a, farm. a village <laughs> or a farm. Um, what does that practicality actually look like? And then you get the, you know, the breast pump that actually fits inside a bra, which is silent, yeah. which means you can pump while you're on the go. Um, and I also think it's important to mention that these innovations, like the breast pump, are really important in the breastfeeding journey of all types of parents. So whether that's trans women or trans men, um, breast pumps play a part in their journey as well. They can both breastfeed and also adoptive parents, or if you haven't even been pregnant or you've, you're an adoptive parent or you've had a child through surrogacy, um, you can also breastfeed. These are things that blew my mind. I didn't know that that was possible, but it or is. Or that that was something that um, people weren't talking about. I think mm. you do like a fantastic job in this of just exposing not just individuals, but kind of experiences and people and challenges that, that engineering or society might face. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a great, perspective on gender without it being extraordinarily obvious and you having to say explicitly this is a woman engineer they're just there they're just there doing their engineering the like story. they always have been and like they always should be and um, so I'd like to finish by kind of returning to these seven objects and the act of you beginning of lockdown throughout lockdown um, looking at them individually going through how they were reinvented and iterated and developed and then looking at these kind of hidden stories and narratives. And obviously it was immensely valuable for you to do that because you've changed that into a, into a book, um, which will inevitably be a massive success and be translated <laughs> into a bunch of languages. Um, but how might it be important for everyone else? And how might this change how we kind of look at engineering of the past and think about what we're engineering in the future? Um, yeah, so I think about this book has, I, you know, I want to ignite or reignite people's curiosity for the world. Um, I want them to be going to their friends. Did you know that the Americans used to burn down their houses to retrieve the nails because the nails were such a precious commodity? Like that sounds completely 
bonkers to us today, but that Super was Super American. Or, you know, this, the things about breastfeeding that we've talked about, whatever. I want people to be telling their friends these stories if they've read the book or, you know, followed this chat that we've had today. Um, I want them to think about responsibility of engineers. You know, as engineers, are we thinking about the future? You know, did, did our ancestral engineers think about waste recyclability? Is that maybe what's led us to the state that we're in now, perhaps? So if we're creating new technology now, are we really thinking about 500 years time, 1,000 years time, how much waste we're going to be creating by this? Will this piece of plastic or phone or electronics still be here 2,000 years in the future because it doesn't decompose? So there's a huge sense of responsibility there. I talk about it in the string chapter because textiles is an extraordinarily polluting and waste-intensive industry. Um, and it's really changed the way I think about my clothes and what I wear. Um, I'm now obsessed with crochet and knitting, but again, that's a whole other conversation. You have crocheted all of the seven objects um, of this book. I, I have crocheted all morning. seven <laughs> objects of this book. I have a crocheted scarf that I wore here today. Um, and in fact, I've even, so I'm hosting a new podcast called um, Create the Future. And my first great plug, episode, great plug. great plug, the first episode is about engineering and knitting and craft okay, so um, it's relevant <laughs> to the chapter um, on string to the chapter on <laughs> string <laughs> um, but but what I, what this tells us or hopefully what it's pointing us towards is that idea of responsibility and thinking about what impact is this glass or this object we've created going to have in the next few hundred or thousand years um, but if we're talking about us today on just like picking up a book, reading the book. I, I just want people to be curious. I want them to be a little bit less intimidated by our technology and engineering, which feels like a black box, quite inscrutable. If their blender breaks, to give them the curiosity to say, let me at least pick up a screwdriver and unscrew the thing and just see what the different parts are. And maybe I order a part online and replace it myself. You know, so I, I just want people to feel a little bit more comfortable with the technology and engineering that surrounds them. Yeah, I feel that a lot. I changed the oven light the other oh, day. That's great. Phone my friend to tell him I was so proud of myself. <laughs> um, I really like the, the idea that you've just given me that somewhere in some school or some engineering society, they could take each chapter and turn it into like a display or an assembly or something where you could explore them all. And there's a lot. I'll be your press person. Um, and it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you, Roma. Thank you so much. But I'm afraid that's all that we have time for right now. Um, and thanks so much for talking to everyone here today. Roma's book, Nuts and Bolts, is out now. The RSA have provided a discount code for anyone who's buying it through FOILS. The code is FOILS RSA 20. So all capital letters, FOILS RSA 20. Both the code and a link to the book will be appearing in the live chat as we speak. Thank you so much for everyone tuning in and also to the RSA for hosting this event. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the RSA and how you can get involved with our global fellowship community, you can visit the rsa.org. Thank you so much and see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.